and somehow the conversation came up about uh, Hillary's hike after she lost. And I said that I bet Donald Trump had never gone for a hike. And they thought that was the funniest idea that they had ever. They literally were keeled over laughing at that idea that he had never gone for a hike. Welcome to Landline Podcast. I'm a professional voiceover artist that Alex could never have actually gotten unless I was his friend from 10 years ago. Do, 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 do. Good Friday, Landline listeners. Welcome back to Landline Podcast. No matter what day you're listening, um... Great to have you back. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Thank you for your continued support and nice words. Thanks for emailing landlandpodcast at gmail.com, which I haven't checked in three weeks. I probably should do that. Doesn't mean I don't check it, although it does. Today we have Mitch, the family therapist from Portland, Oregon, giving us an update on the Trump protest on the vibe in Portland. Has been in the news an awful lot. Uh, vis-a-vis the Trump election. So I thought we should talk about it. Trump is a windfall for a landline like every other media outlet, I guess, as you've seen a couple episodes here in a row. We're going to continue to try to keep things rolling with Mondays and Fridays. Keep subscribing. Keep reviewing. Keep listening. Keep telling us what sucks and what doesn't. And we'll keep trying to do a good job. So thanks again for listening. And without further ado, here is a great conversation about being in a very liberal place with a Donald Trump election. President-elect Donald Trump. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Landline. So welcome back to Landline to Mitch, Portland, Oregon, a uh, family therapist working out of a yurt that he crowdfunded on Indiegogo, if memory serves. And um, we're happy to have him back. We're having Mitch back today for many reasons. One, he's a friend of Landline's. Um, his, I think his two numbers were 6436013 and I want to say 6435517. Close five seven five one. Ah, pretty good though. Pretty good. Um, and Mitch lives in Portland, Oregon, my former home, maybe my future home, depending on how this thing works out. Um, but Mitch had a healthy obsession with everyone else's obsession with Donald Trump prior to the election, and now the unthinkable has happened in the election, and there's been a amazing amount of um. I don't know if amazing is the right word, but there's been a healthy dose of activity in Portland in response to Trump's election. So I just kind of wanted to have you on to talk about 
the full spectrum. I know that it's probably really hard to think what you were thinking before the election happened, but we had a beautiful dinner at your new home. You've become a homeowner. I'd say if we had a little like horn to sound when we have someone on the landline that's a homeowner, we would sound it right now. Um, doesn't happen often. And uh, we had a beautiful dinner at your home amongst friends and family. And you really had like an incredible excitement in your voice and smile on your face when we were talking about Trump. So can you just recap some of the the kind of elect the pre-election um, love affair you had with the Trump coverage and the Trump campaign? Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to uh, correct you on two things. One, my obsession was not healthy. And two, it was a full-fledged obsession with him and not with other people's obsession with him. So okay, even better for just, us. Even better for us. Analysts. Yeah, so I, I felt like that was uh, worth uh, clarifying. But, you know, I thought that it would maybe subside for a moment when the election was said and done, at least what I promised myself, that's what I promised my wife, that's what I promised my uh, days in terms of the way that they are uh, organized, but it hasn't. But I can easily take myself back and take us back to before the election when I would almost compulsively just find my fingers on my phone starting to punch in the five-letter word of Trump. Uh, and what was I looking for? I'm not even sure. I just was looking for what that next bit of information was going to be. I, I find myself thinking it was basically like a train wreck or a, or a car wreck in which I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. I had the biggest case of rubbernecking ever, but this rubbernecking was day in, day out. I would wake up in the morning and I would grab my phone and I would go to the bathroom to hide to see what his late-night Twitter rants had been. I would go in between sessions with uh, my clients, and I would duck back into the yurt and just see maybe there was one next thing for there to be news about. And it just went on and on and on. And I, you know, it wasn't even the political part that was fascinating or absolutely consuming for me. It was just his caricature of himself it was really for me like this kind of shakespearean villain like character that was just playing out in front of our eyes and i was well aware as it was happening that i was really just feeding the machine in the way that he wanted i, I read one compelling article along the way that said that he really didn't even care whether it was good footage or bad footage or scathing publicity or or celebratory he just was uh just just loved the attention and i was giving him that every single moment and it was really kind of disoriented in a lot of ways but he, so it played out so it played out and so it played out and <laughs> to the best of my knowledge it seems to continue to play out yeah, it's certainly if, if if this is an addiction, then you just got like four more years of supply like dropped off on your door and you literally won't be able to go through the stash. So it's it's like it's, it's an unlimited supply of drugs. Um, 
So, Mitch, I don't know how to eloquently put this, but there you have a unique part of your personality. We've known each other for a long time. And this is not a criticism, although it probably will sound like one, but I, I want you to sort of peel back the onion because you're good at that. You have always been someone who, like, has taken some degree of pleasure out, out of watching. It's not even schadenfreude, but you do – you are fascinated by watching things unfold, and you don't make – you your, that fascination does not stop when the thing that's unfolding is negative. So, like – even at a party, like watching, you know, we we've 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 been hanging out a long time. We've been to parties as sixteen-year-olds together in college, the whole nine yards. But even watching like a dramatic incident at a high school party, you used to be fascinated by whether it was like somebody breaking up or somebody getting in trouble or somebody getting in a fight or somebody getting yelled at. Like there, you just you are a, definitely a very. Um, you have you have a ton of care. I feel safe around you. I know you would help me if I needed help. But you also have a gene that loves to watch things unfold, even if someone could use not help like they're on the side of the road. But if I think your brain, if it discovers that you think everything is going to turn out OK, you're willing to just watch the whole thing happen. So. Do you feel like there was a sense of that happening? Like you didn't feel any call to action to stop Trump. You were almost actually excited that he continued in order to watch him more, right? Oh yeah, no, I, I wouldn't help him on the side of the road. I would watch and want to see him just really be in that discomfort. And yeah, I mean, it's voyeuristic, absolutely. And where it come from, I'm not even sure. I think maybe there's just this 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 predisposition towards you know it just feels like you're living when you're seeing the real full range of human experience in front of your eyes from the depths of narcissism to the heights of selflessness and compassion and so he was just it was just i mean constant material i mean every single kind of layer of his, you know, and I've formulated, as many other people have, many theories about who he is and what has led to be. And many people, I believe, were just, you know, only able to see kind of their own reaction and this kind of outer layer that he had of the brashness of the racist comments of the speaking off the cuff, but I really just kind of saw it further down towards, you know, this embodiment of the the kid who wasn't loved enough by his father and just seeked just constant validation from anybody he could possibly uh, find it from to tell him that he was awesome or a champion or, you know, a winner. And it just fed this this mentality that just started to just go out of control, snowball, go up and go higher. And from kind of my angle, it was just, I just loved walking. I just wanted him to do the most grandiose next thing because it just, from my thousands of miles away, completely not uh taking any action it was just 
just fodder over and over and over again. It was like watching somebody get too drunk but knew that they weren't going to uh, be any sort of health risk, but just, you know, it was like watching Max over and over and over again, but someone who said things that were just completely over the top. So Max is our great friend we grew up with who uh, hopefully is actually going to make his his uh, a weekly appearance. I think I've got him scheduled for a weekly appearance. So our listeners will know more about him um, soon. So what's interesting to me, though, is like your your partner, your wife, the mother of your two young boys and your community in Portland is not willing to watch the car crash even before the election the way you are. So, you know, I think I feel like selfishly maybe seeing me a couple of weeks ago was a great opportunity to like hash Trump out at a dinner table because maybe you didn't get that opportunity at other dinner tables in Portland, but I could be completely wrong. How did your immediate community, your immediate network, and specifically I want to know about Allie, your wife, how did they react to you sort of like liking the fact that he continued to exist and that he said worse and worse things? Oh, she was appalled. I mean, I now have vicariously through my uh, obsession with him become an embodiment of white male privilege and somewhat misogyny in my wife's eyes. So... <laughs> Just to build a little context, my wife went to, as our, uh, as some of you may or may not know, Stephen Bannon, who is a recent Trump uh, acquisition to his uh, council, uh, referred to the women of the Seven Sisters schools in uh, New England, that's Smith and Wellesley and Mount Holyoke and some of those. Well, he referred them to dykes. Uh, and a word that I would never say lightly, but I'm just repeating his own. Sure, sure. It only came off that way. Don't worry. We won't. It only came off. That. We won't isolate yeah. you saying dykes and then send it in an email to all your uh, therapy clients. Don't worry. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, anyways, uh, my wife went to one of these schools and she dated women for most of her time there, and continued to be with women after this uh, institutional experience that she had. And sometimes I kind of wonder if she would actually prefer to be with a woman than myself. So the fact that her partner, her life partner, her father of her children was not a woman and really kind of infatuated with this uh, the villain-like character that basically stands for everything that her and her friends uh, absolutely resist against was definitely kind of a sticking point for us. Uh, our election night experience was w- watching it with her and her childhood friend who also is uh, a woman that dates women. And so uh, that's just just a couple examples of where the kind of the dinner conversations were rooted in. So my outlets for this, uh, the Trump phenomenon that I was experiencing internally were very few and far between. Well, I want to obviously get the full description of the election night party and all of that. But um, so she, she was pissed at you, but not pissed enough to like 
kick you out for dinner, so to speak. I mean, like, what did that what did that mean to your like in all seriousness? What did that mean to your family relationship? Like, did she just she there must be some part of her that finds it entertaining to see you so entertained. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, I think there were some parts of it. I think a couple times when I had borrowed her phone and she saw in the search menu Trump, she was thinking that maybe things were escalating to a point that needed some interventions. But she was able to kind of reframe it in her own world towards, um, you know, it was nice to see me caring about something. It was, you know, I was taking a vested interest in our children's lives or our, uh, you know, our the livelihoods, etc. So I think she was in some sort of denial that I, that I, and, and, and I want to really make it blatantly clear. I don't um, agree with a lot of his things and I don't necessarily uh, think highly of him as an individual. So she was really able to I, really able to differentiate the obsession with the alignment of my own values. So that was a, a positive, absolutely. But, um, you know, it, it provided some kind of some conflictual moments for sure. Well, I can commiserate with one aspect of what you mentioned, um, which is so this past week I've been – you know, at grad school where I had 65% of my graduate school classes from out of the country. A huge percentage of those are Latin Americans, uh, a lot of Mexicans, um, Colombians, and, you know, um, a lot of Venezuelans, actually. And then you go down to South America, and the South Americans tend to, to, to care less. But so I've had a couple of incidents at, at school where I've sort of had to say what I think. I've been asked to give my opinion, either in passing or we even had a formal meeting um, that is usually about food. Um, it's an organization that is about food called Food Soul, but this week it was all about the election, so it was supposed to be a safe place for people to come and share their opinions. And I find myself a lot of times saying things like, um, I said, what did I say? I said basically, in, in some perverse way, this is one of the greatest weeks of my life because I feel as if everything is as fucked up as I thought it was, and now finally everybody is realizing that too, and we can start to get on to like fixing things without thinking that the government is going to come and do it for us. Like It's really going to be community organization and social movement and an ability to you know gain new tolerance. Those are the things that are going to actually make a change in this country, but having said all that, there's also this moment inside where I'm like, but wait a second, I'm a white man. Can I actually even, A, is it even appropriate for me to be saying this stuff from my point of view? And B, do I even, will I ever even know the sort of discomfort that other people within the, you know, the, the country are feeling right now? Um, and then I guess, see, do people just look at me and think that when I'm saying it? But then, you know, D, E, F, whatever, we can just... Whoa. Did I lose you? Uh, I lost you at white man. Oh, perfect. You didn't lose me very... Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Um, so basically, what I was listing is just saying, like, how am I supposed to feel when I say those things? Like, I feel as if I'm really... 
I'm trying to offer a sense of comfort. I mean, I say things more than just that. I say things like, you know, this country isn't just about the Senate and the Supreme Court and the president. The checks and balances extend to, um, you know, communities and school boards and people making a decision to live their life in a certain way. And I try to give all these uplifting reasons why Trump getting elected doesn't matter. But then still, I'm still a white man. And so, but then again, sh should I not speak up because I am a white man? Like, is our role as white men to offer support like we're the good white men? Or is our role to just shut the fuck up? I can't really tell. Um, so it's just interesting. The white man thing, obviously we've got it the best of anyone. So it's not like anyone's going to feel sorry for us. But um, it does feel like a weird position to be in when you're trying to speak about this stuff because we really don't know how others would feel. But at the same time, is some of the point of view of a minority person actually based in reality either? We don't know that the fears that they have are going to be realized. We just know that it's a really good opportunity for them to say them. So it's all a major game of perception. I mean, what, what say you to all that? Yeah, I mean, you, you raise these core juxtapositions that are taking place, especially when uh, it comes to white male privilege, which so many white men are blind towards. And a lot of the conversations that I've been having since the election, because the, the, the majority of my uh, client base are white men, affluent white men. And this does provide an opportunity for many of us to really examine our blindness and our just institutionalized privilege that we've been able to uh, experience. And yet I hear a lot of what you're describing as these attempts to kind of reframe it. And, and, and I find myself uh, many times uh, when I've tried to reframe it in my own experience because I uh, the first wave of acceptance was met with a lot of uh, uh, despair and distraught uh, feelings around who we are as a, as a country and who we are uh, where we're going but but I keep coming back to this well let's just shine a really bright light at all these issues that have been going on for so long, but going on from these kind of behind closed doors or more taboo uh, locations, but that they are very real and that they have been very real for uh, people of color and minority populations. Uh, yet many people that didn't, you know, that were blind to it, such as ourselves, were our perception was, oh, no, no, that doesn't necessarily happen, and, and so on and so forth. And so what I keep coming back to and, and the conversations that I've had with, with people who, you know, folks that are in same-sex relationships and really worried about their uh, what their rights are going to be or women that are nervous about uh, women's rights or, or my, people of color and what they're potentially going to experience is that there has to be this kind of validation of their fear and their uh, the threat levels that might be increasing for them, but also 
recognizing that where there is struggle, there is opportunity. And for many of these uh, marginalized marginalized populations, this struggle has been going on for for a long time. This is nothing new. And so, yeah, there might be some elevated levels of it, but they're resilient and have been within the struggle, yet still need to be kind of honored in their ongoing and potentially now heightened level of it. So um, it makes me think about, um, so the, you know, I'm big into food and food sustainability. It's something that comes up sporadically on the podcast. I think, you know, there's probably room in my, in my day to actually have a food podcast that would actually go someplace versus a, uh, you know, a, a hard to a hard to label podcast that's going nowhere, but um, still tell a friend, everyone out there, uh, pass the link on. Make sure you put it on Fuckbook or whatever you're on. So, um, I have this like sort of theory, which is that the the time that everyone will start paying attention to the problems, the problems in food are astronomical. the The impact of the you know, international agriculture business is massive. It's it's greater than transportation. It's greater than anything. It's basically like we are we are ruining the earth by growing the food that we need to eat in the way that we're growing it. But until the food runs out, no one's going to ask themselves what the problem is. As long as the grocery stores are stocked and the food is, you know, relatively healthy, even if it's full of pesticides and enriched you know flour and all that bullshit you know no one's really dying from the food right away they might be dying of diabetes or heart disease but um really until the food runs out that's when everyone's like oh shit we got to start growing things differently because the soil is fucked so it feels like trump for a second there trump was the version of the food running out things were finally going to get bad enough that everyone was going to have a reason to get active for once. I mean, we've talked a lot about how how could anybody do anything about the plight of the world if they have a Best Buy TV bought on credit and a recliner and football and beer and a car and, you know, they'll just like basic and a, and a, a free mortgage and the whole nine yards. I mean, Americans are way too fat and happy to get up and do anything. Um and maybe Trump will ultimately be the thing that makes them get up and do something. So in that way, it's like a, it's like we're fast forwarding to the worst possible scenario where people actually have to take notice and get active. And we, we are actually faced with our own survival. Like, are we empirically good or bad as a species? And do we have the intelligence and the camaraderie and the skill set to survive? But unfortunately, I think as the week goes on we see that he's basically just going to be another politician. Now, I probably I bet I bet people in Portland don't think that way. Um, so that is a really bad bridge to another major topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the protest. So um, if we can kind of go off from the point I just made and assume that it's right or assume that you have no argument with it or assume that you just aren't going to get to talk about it because I'm going to change the subject and Talk about like the mood in Portland and whether or not that sort of horror of the food has run out has has been consistent since the election. And if that's what the protests are all about, what are the protests all about? And I guess like how are you guys reacting to them as people that are I mean, I assume have you been protesting? 
I, I myself have not been to any of the protests uh, at this point. And so I only know of what's been going on from kind of afar, from talking to people who have been and so forth. But the kind of the initial catalyst for the or the initial protest movement was started by this gentleman, um, Gregory McKelvey, who's uh, actually a Lewis and Clark uh, graduate student in uh, in law. He's a law student, and he's uh, he's a he's a black man, and he's uh, really active in the community and has been an activist for quite some time, looking at a lot of different. Um, issues around the city. And so he, right after the election results came in, he started uh, Portland Resistance, which was the group that kind of took responsibility for organizing the protest. And, and apparently the first night of them, it was uh, really incredible. There was thousands of people. The, the law enforcement, local law enforcement was on board. They gave them uh, a uh, guided kind of entourage of, of law enforcement to uh, help with traffic control. They marched down I-5, which is the main uh, main interstate that goes right through Portland. It was just, you know, thousands of people marching down this very busy highway, and it was very peaceful. It was, it seemed like really just kind of a, the, yes, people were uh, protesting the result of the election, but it also seemed like it was, there was so much internal strife and mourning and grieving and, and loss and despair. And, and a lot of people had a lot of things going on that they needed this, this outlet, this, this kind of cathartic solidarity moment to be together and kind of support each other and so forth. And so it, it sounded like it was really beautiful that, that evening. And then it kind of kept going on for a couple of nights. And then a couple of nights in there, uh, it turned what now has been coined by several media, uh, I mean, lots of uh, media outlets as, as riots. But what really w what happened was there was a small minority of individuals that were there for different motives that were for described as kind of more on the anarchist. Uh, side of things that just wanted to break things and be uh, chaotic and riotous. And so that happened two, two of the nights this past weekend. And at that point, you know, the law enforcement kind of turned on it, started coming out in riot gear, was a lot more uh, intense in their interventions with tear, tear gas and sound bombs and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and at that point, the mayor of Portland kind of put his foot down and said, you know, protests aren't going to do anything, do get involved locally. And he kind of set this boundary at, you know, let's look at different things. And so since then, there on Sunday night after the uh, kind of intense weekend, there was a, a candle night vigil that was very peaceful and very uh, cathartic again. And that was kind of the, the wrap up. And then this week there has been um a lot of dormancy in there haven't been large protests or marches or whatnot. And, and what I've been kind of hearing is that there's a lot of um, there's been what's inspiring to me is, is a lot of reframing towards this is our opportunity to really be active on this local, on this grassroots, on this 
on this ground floor level because just protesting, yeah, we did that, and there's going to be a huge uh, peaceful protest scheduled for the election for inauguration day, but but I'm hoping that uh, that it, that there will be this what you were describing as these uh, this opportunity to really look at ourselves in the mirror and decide who we want to be as a people and get involved and not just say that we want to get involved and and so there have been kind of some natural national uh, media runnings on all you know all these protesters that got arrested didn't vote and that i think kind of spun a, a negative light on it but what i'm hearing from a lot of my colleagues and friends that are far more active than i am in the community that there's lots and lots of energy being placed on these local movements and Portland's already come out to say that we're going to be a sanctuary city for undocumented immigrants and so forth. And so it seems like there's in, in the California as well. So there's this really big movement, it seems like, towards um, us. I don't want to say us versus them, but our, I mean, Oregon just uh, had the first uh, gay governor elected to public office this election, Kate Brown, and she's come out vehemently uh, against what a lot of Trump's rhetoric and really wants to promote uh, our state as being a a place where we do align with the values that that are not in accordance with his, and so. I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. I think that there will be a uh, a very easy opportunity for it to become too normal to him just being another politician and 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 having a lot of this momentum uh, wither away. But but maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, one person that's been lost in all of this is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> She it's it's almost as if what should have happened was we should have had a yes or no vote on Donald Trump. And and if the vote had been no, we could have like redone a six month uh, nomination and then election. But it shouldn't have been her versus him, because in a way what's happened that I think is. You know, okay, so I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, completely blue. We legalized marijuana. We legalized like happy chicken coops this election. And, and, you know, the electoral votes went for Clinton. No surprises there. But uh, at the same time, I think people in Massachusetts are um, a, a little bit less likely to act the way that you're describing people in Oregon for. But we still are faced with the same questions, which are um, who do we want to be and how do we want to treat these issues that I will give Donald Trump credit for. He actually brought up wherever you stand on immigration, we don't have a policy on it right now that is going to be uh, satisfying for the country in the long term. I'm not saying that we need to like have a law. I actually don't know how I feel about immigration as I stand here right now. But I know that nobody has really talked it out to the point where everyone's opinions have been heard and a decision has been made. And the same thing with healthcare. Like, it's great that there is universal health or pseudo universal healthcare in this country. But it turns out that the way that it was structured, it really can't be paid for in any sort of affordable way. So, 
what's the plan with that? And, you know, as, as someone who's in business school right now, I can tell you with great authority that Social Security is completely fucked because that it's based on the expectation that people who retire are going to live to between 65 and 70. Like the average life expectancy when Social Security was invented was like 51. And now if you live past 65, you're expected to live until you're 90. And then Medicare is even worse from what I've heard. So... Um, you know, we are faced with all these political issues that we are not discussing as a country or we're choosing to just continue the status quo. But to go back to Hillary Clinton, I think a lot of the people who are turned off by the Trump protests and I happen to be somewhat uh, I'm glad to see that they are redirecting their efforts because obviously you can't find many sane people that were supporting the anarchists. And I'm sure that all the sane people in Portland that I was friends with and I did business with and I worked with weren't, weren't supporting them, especially because they have small businesses that, you know, whose windows probably got smashed. But um, they are connecting the protest back to Hillary Clinton. And I think one thing we're all saying is I'm not really sure anybody wanted Hillary Clinton to be president, which I think in retrospect is an interesting conversation just because it sh sort of shows the um, failure of the democratic process to get at least one good alternative. Um, you know, party politics aside, it would have been nice to have one person running for president who didn't seem like a total scumbag if you listen to the opposing point of view do like a half an hour of, you know, talk radio on them. So, I mean, is there any support for Hillary in Portland or is it just all I don't even know if that's the question to ask. I bet you I bet Allie and her friends were pro Hillary as seven sisters school people. No, I mean, I, I Bernie Bernie won out here and there was a lot of uh, definite Bernie uh, contingency and Bernie bros out here. So. Uh, it took a big adjustment for everybody to kind of switch over uh, over to her, and um, yeah, it's 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 a good question. I, it's now in hindsight, it's amazing how you know these bubbles exist, and um, and you're in one, we're, I'm in one, and the media was in one, and these echo chambers were so so powerful. But now that the, it's kind of all the bubble has burst in a little bit. It's I'm I think it was so obvious to me now in hindsight that Trump was going to win, and I didn't see it. Um, I didn't want to accept it. I didn't uh, believe it. But now it just seems so predictable that it was going to be that case. And um, and who knows? We'll 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 see how what. Hillary does or, or, or does not. I, I, she went for a hike after the uh, the election results, so that was uh, a nice thing. And actually, we were uh, talking with our, our boys, our, who now our oldest one is about to be five in February, and our youngest is three. And they've been uh, interested in what's going on, and, and somehow the conversation came up about uh, Hillary's hike after she lost. And I said that I bet Donald Trump had never gone for a hike. And they 
thought that was the funniest idea that they had ever they literally were keeled over laughing at that idea that he had never gone for a hike that's amazing i think you're breaking new grand, ground on landline right now no one that is an original thought on trump right now mitch that is that's that is headline because what, what, i mean central park doesn't count right and Who's ever seen him outside of Manhattan, not like on a golf course or in a hotel lobby? I mean, I, you know, we can Twitter him and ask. Did you hear, um, getting a little less serious, did you hear about how the Oval Office isn't going to be ready for a year? I saw some, I saw some uh, tidbit on that. So, yeah, apparently, according to the New York Post, where I get all my good news, um, there needs to be a security upgrade to the Oval Office, of course. The taxpayers are going to pay whatever trillion dollars to put nuclear-proof glass on the Oval Office doors, just what that beautiful historic building needs. And so Obama basically said a couple years ago, well, like, fuck that. Do it when I'm gone. I don't want it done while I'm here. So they need to do a year's worth of upgrades on the Oval Office. So Trump won't even get to work out of the Oval Office until a year after the inauguration. And he's going to have to work in Richard Nixon's old office in the uh, old executive office building, which is this beautiful building next to the to the White House um, at the corner of Pennsylvania and whatever that other street is, K or L or whatever it is. But um, um I just think the whole thing is fascinating. Like, I can't even imagine him being in D.C. for any length of time. I feel like he's such a creature of Manhattan that it's going to be. I mean, how many helicopter flights between Trump Tower and the White House are there going to be over the next four years? Yeah. And it turns out that he's apparently a, a, a huge homebody and he would have on the campaign trail them fly hours out of the way in these really indirect paths so that he could get back home to sleep in his own bed and go through his own routine of, of Twitter late night rants and waking up at five to read the post and the times and then wouldn't come out of his cave until about 10 a.m. So uh, convenient that now he has a built in excuse. That's true. Good point. Um, so do you feel like sad that your kids, there's been like this prevailing sentiment, like, what do I tell my kids? Like, what's your point of view on talking to your kids about president Trump? Well, they still think it's pretty funny. Um, you know, August had the, what turned into be this just running joke for us all. But one of the first conversations that we had with him about, uh, Donald Trump is being not a nice guy and saying mean things was, you know, we'll never forget it, where August just thought so long and hard about this, this not nice man and what he was going to do in his mind. The worst thing that he could possibly do to him because he was a not nice man was to, and he said, quote, I'm going to take out my butt and poop on him. And that was his stance. And it just kind of kept being the, the central point of his reaction to him. But, you know, we tried to kind of shelter them a little bit from it just uh, because they're still so young and it should be sunny and serene for, for them. And we have that 
kind of the, that privilege to be able to try and kind of protect them from that. But but where they w- know what the result was, and we talked debriefed a little bit, our uh, approach was that this was a great opportunity for our family to do whatever we could to be uh, nice to each other and embracing of our friends and people that were different than us. And, and so that's been our, you know, we're not either of us in a great, uh, Ali and I in a great position to, you know, take on this new life as activists or, you know, volunteer in a lot of different movements or so forth. So, you know, our approach is bunkering into our little closed off system and doing what we can to kind of solidify values and, and beliefs that we have. And so that's what they're seeing is that this is for them a, a, a place to kind of solidify being uh, the kind folks that they already are in their uh, just youth. Well, um, before I let you go, we got to check in on the yurt therapy business. Um, Mitch's first uh, first appearance on the show was over a year ago. Um, feel free to go back and, and listen to it. Um, the uh, t- the Uber driving yurt worker or something like that. I'll, I'll come up with a better title for this one so we get some more Google hits. I'm sure Trump will be in the title. But um, – How's the yurt looking, first of all, like structurally, interior? How's the interior design? Any new uh, additions you want to tell us about? And then without breaking any doctor confidentiality or without, you know, doing anything that you would think would uh, make you or your patients feel uncomfortable, can you just give us a little indication? It is a very interesting time for therapists in this country. How you think the Trump presidency impacts maybe a the demand for your service and b the types of conversations you might be having in general yeah so i'm in the yurt i'm in the the friendly confines of the yurt as we speak i've been uh walking in a circle for the last uh 45 minutes as we've been talking uh it helps me to move my thoughts in and, and around uh, the interior design has remained relatively the same. Uh, I, I went to great lengths to walk this line between kind of urban, chic urban and, and rustic nature. And so that's been uh, kind of my vision all along. And so it's maintained that, maintained that uh, approach. I, I got a new coat rack. This, uh, this fall as the weather started to shift towards wetness. And um, it goes well. I have two other uh, folks that use the yurt on days that I'm not there. So I, I rent it out to them for their practices to help spread the, uh, the yurt therapy vision. and um, Multiple streams of revenue, very important for any business. Uh, yeah. And the, the night of the election, I got um, three new inquiries for uh, therapy services. So um, if anything, as long as uh, people still have money and insurance has to go away, I see it being a, uh, a catalyst for more stress and more uh, fodder for people's personal journeys. So, uh, so that, is, that is a good thing. Um, at least in that realm, but 
the uh the the most inside knowledge that i got on the protest was from a college student who uh goes to and he is uh someone that wanted to just go to watch the protests. So he decided that the best way to watch the protests was to take uh, three hits of LSD and then go down there to just view it, um, while also dressing in the night of the protests. He thought that if he dressed like a woman, that would really add some um, variability to the whole experience, the science experiment, if you will. And um, his his uh, insight was pretty pretty interesting in that uh, lens of high on acid, dressed like a woman, watching uh, tear gas and smoke bombs go off. Wouldn't necessarily be my choice for a uh, uh, mellow Saturday night, but we had a lengthy, healthy conversation about it, and that in itself felt productive. Wow. Uh, I guess that's where the term far out comes from. I feel like someplace uh, back in the 60s that the words far out were first muttered after a, uh, a, a s- story like that. Well, that's that's Portland for you, folks, amongst other things. That's a that's if you want to keep Portland weird, then that's the sort of stories that should be should be uh, should be produced. So, um all right. Well, that's great. It's great to catch up. Uh, I really appreciate your point of view. I guess my last little like question for you on a philosophical level is where do you think uh, – I mean this might be too long and I know you have to go and I, I think the length of our pod so far has been perfect. Like It's it's tight and good and sweet and, and intelligent, so I don't want to run over too much. But I guess I do want to open up the can of worms one more time by asking you what do you think – this will do for people's sense of I don't know I guess let's 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 bring it to the landline aspect of this all let's I got to do a better job bringing in the landline but like you know we have such a we have such a echo chamber of of media influence that you mentioned earlier on this in this conversation but it goes beyond that it goes to the sense that we are um we we perceive ourselves to be the projection of ourselves that we see constantly in social media, in mass media, on television, but even beyond television now. I mean, television is, um, you know, comparatively so benevolent to the Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram world of constantly seeing people like you, your peers, your competitors all the time. So... In the, if there is an impending sense of doom for some people when it comes to Trump, do you think that their concern is somewhat misplaced given that their everyday life actually fundamentally won't change? And do you think that maybe people are reacting to this stuff in a way they wouldn't at other times because they are so disconnected from what it is exactly that they do on a daily basis? Well, I... I'm hoping that it brings us back to landlines. I, I, you know, I think that as you bring you back to your uh, commentary on the food industry, where we, for whatever reason, and it doesn't feel very uh, evolutionarily fit, but are have some, for some reason, evolved to this tendency where we don't really take action until it's a crisis or we're in you know, in shambles. And so 
in a lot of ways, I think Trump is a he's a mirror. He's this giant mirror that is reflecting back on all of us and of who we are and how he came to be. And so much of his rise to prominence was through these vehicles of social media, reality TV, of these fears and these echo chambers that exist. And so one of the I think one of the groups that comes off of the election more weak than ever before is the media and is social media to some regards. We may not necessarily see it right yet now, but but I think that there is. Uh, I know that despite the fact that I've kind of relapsed a little bit into continuing to Google him, I have made some very conscious efforts to reel my self back in. And I'm not even close to the other side of the continuum that many people are with their relationships with it. So so it could. It could have a really, uh, really kind of changing um, energy towards these relationships that we have with with all these uh, different kind of outlets and different parts of technology and social systems and et cetera. But at least I hope so. And I'm going to, I would love to have a landline. I still want to, um, you know, find ways of uh, making my uh, home phone um, app work. And, uh, and right. actually the <laughs> so so we'll see that actually the brother I don't know if you've heard of the of the yonder bags that Dave Chappelle kind of uh, has made pretty popular these uh, bags that he requires people to put their cell phones in before he comes to their shows um, and they basically deactivate your cell phone when you come to his show so that no one's interrupting his show with their cell phones and it's kind of caught a little bit of a of a uh, a wave. Alicia Keys did it, whatever. But the 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 guy who started it is from Portland and now is in the Bay Area. But his sister is a wife of a friend of mine, and they were all at this party this weekend. And so he was saying that the yonder bags are uh, had a huge uptick after uh, and in around the election. So little signs like that might point to uh, trends kind of moving away from that other side of uh the continuum that they have really gone towards um quick story that is great for that dave Chappelle anecdote i when i was at george washington university first semester of school um of my three colleges i still got to do the podcast on the three colleges with saul or max um uh Went to like whatever it was, homecoming weekend or the first giant student event and the Smith Center on the GW campus where the basketball team plays probably holds, you know, six to ten thousand people. And Dave Chappelle was there and tickets were five, ten bucks and sold out. And this was 2001 after September 11th. It must have been. Um, and maybe it was before. I'd have to look on a calendar. I'll figure it out. Um but anyways, he did a great show, and we, you know we were all eighteen, smoking weed, blah blah blah. Like he was ta- telling jokes about that, the whole nine yards. But um, this kid in the audience was taping him on what on there weren't smartphones. I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone, so he must have been taping him on a camcorder. And he caught him and told him to stop, and the kid did it again, and he ended up bringing him up on stage and making fun of him for thirty minutes, like. 
It was this skinny white Jewish kid from Long Island, and he made fun of how small his dick was for 35 minutes on stage in front of 8,000 people he went to school with. So really comes full circle if Dave Chappelle is now doing the Yonder Bag. That's been something that's been on his mind for I, for 15 years, and I can say that with great authority. So there's the, uh, the story about that. Um, well, Mitch, I can't thank you enough for doing this. The Landline listeners, thank you. Um, I think we need to come up with some sort of therapy angle if i could ever get callers if i could do a much better job producing this show we could have call-ins and you could give a little uh free therapy advice a la dr drew from from the yurt um but if you ever you know come up with a uh with a bit we'll call we'll call more often but maybe we'll make it a point of doing it because as you know listeners as you know mitch this is all about having conversations with friends on the phone on the landline restoring a sense of place and purpose when you're on the phone not looking at it but speaking through it so uh that's what landline's all about so thank you and uh enjoy the rest of your afternoon in the yurt oh thank you thank you and thanks for having me on and uh godspeed to you thank you we'll talk soon all right adios Landline is hosted, written, and produced by Alex McKay. The best thing you can do to support the show is tell a friend. Find other episodes of Landline on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and talkforaliving.com. Call the Landline at 617-744-1895. Music by the Pitchfork Revolution out of Bend, Oregon.
listening to Landline.